Welcome, friends and foes, saints and sinners. This is your host, Phil, from the Stop and Think About It podcast. I wanted to make all our listeners aware that we plan to unleash a four-part series titled Twisted Scriptures and Christian Cliches. Part one and two are airing in this month of July, and part three and four will be released in August. So you'll have to wait for that part. Now let's dive into our topic. The Bible is the most abused book of all time. This might not sound like a big deal, but misinterpreting scripture results in the destruction of families, stolen lives, and the destruction of souls. Roman Catholics state that wafers and wine literally are transformed into the body and blood of Christ during communion. The prosperity gospel preachers posit that all Christians should be healthy and wealthy if they name it and claim it and just simply have enough faith. Cults like the Latter-day Saints and the Jehovah's Witnesses were founded from twisting scripture out of context. Even well-meaning Christians can abuse scriptures as well. We know that Satan himself quotes scripture when he tempted Christ in the wilderness. How is it that people can take the same Bible verses and come up with entirely different interpretations from one another? Well, join us on this episode of Stop and Think About It. Home? I'm thinking, McFly, think. I'm thinking, I'm thinking. What were you thinking? I'm trying to think, but nothing happens. Don't say anything now. Just think about it. You're listening to Stop and Think About It, a podcast for the Christian thinker. In a day when sound biblical preaching has been replaced by man-centered entertainment, and the church is becoming increasingly anti-intellectual, this podcast will encourage believers to think biblically and theologically. So please join me as we get ready to stop and think about it. Come on, Welcome, friends and foes, saints and sinners, to another episode of Stop and Think About It, where we're covering twisted scripture and Christian cliches. Did you say twisted sister? No, I said twisted scripture. Okay, all right, just want to make sure. <laughs> Imagine for a moment, guys, that a prophet of God gives you a verse from scripture and tells you that someone wrongly interpreted that verse. You get angry and you want to know what fool interpreted the verse in that way. You get so angry, you want to slay the person that misinterpreted God's word. And the prophet says to you, you are that man. Ouch. <laughs> This is similar to what took place when Nathan exposed David's sin. So obviously, even godly people like Nicodemus and others can misinterpret scripture. So, all right, guys, let's all fess up. All right, Steve, have you ever misinterpreted scripture? Oh, boy, have I. All right. What verse have you misinterpreted before? Zechariah chapter 13, verse 6. Which says... Well, in the King James, and when I first got saved, I read the King James for five the years. The best version. The best version. I'm an ESV guy now, or NASB. The Alexander version. Exactly. Listen to Zechariah 13.6, ripped out of context. And one shall say unto him, what are these wounds on thine hands? And they shall answer, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. So, okay, so who do we know that got... That has wounds on his hands. Jesus. Jesus. And where did he get those wounds? The house of Israel. Right. His friends, right? So we would say, oh yeah, this is talking about Jesus. So now let's read it in its context. Zechariah 13, 2 through 6. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the name of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. And I will also remove from the land the prophets, and the spirit of uncleanliness. And if anyone again prophesies, his father or mother who bore him will say to him, you shall not live, for you speak lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who bore him shall pierce him through when he prophesies. Now listen, on that day, every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. He will not put on a hairy cloak in order to deceive, but he will say, I'm not a prophet. I'm a worker of the soil, for a man sold me in my youth. And if anyone asks him, what are these wounds on your back, which the ESV says or King James says on your hands, he will say, oh, these are the wounds I received in the house of my friends. 
So what is he saying here? Zechariah is saying that God is going to remove false prophets from the land. And the false prophets are going to realize that they're false prophets. They're going to stop prophesying. And they're going to try to hide and pretend, oh, I'm not a prophet. I'm a worker. And when someone asks him, if you're not a prophet, what are those wounds on your hand or your back? Oh, I got them while I was working at the house of my friend. Why would they have wounds on their hands? Well, what did the prophets of Baal do? Right. They cut themselves. Yes. <laughs> so this verse is talking about Jesus, not Jesus, about false prophets. And so many, I looked on Facebook and pastors and so many people like me thought that this was talking about Jesus. And what's the simple solution? Read it in its context. Context, context, context. That's going to be the key to this podcast, basically. Yeah. Absolutely. So Steve showed his humanity today. He doesn't walk on clouds. <laughs> heretic, and heretic. <laughs> I mean, would you believe that I have never misinterpreted scripture ever? Liar, liar, uh, pants on fire. <laughs> that's the a different commandment says, <laughs> "Thou shall not lie." So that's a different podcast. We got to do different with that. Podcast. Christian lies. Um, yeah, I think, and this is maybe more embarrassing because this is really recent. Maybe two months ago, um, I was at a Bible study and we were going through the Book of James, chapter five, verse fourteen. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church. And let them pray over him and anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So I've always read that. And I think a lot of people have read that, that you feel sick, you go to the pastor. Guilty. Pastor prays for you. With oil. With oil, right? Baby oil, you know, whatever oil. Could be olive oil, (laughs) anointment oil, anointment oil. Anointment oil. (laughs) You know, they put it on your head, you pray for you and you should be better. You know, the preacher, pastor has some kind of healing ability. Um, now, now, I didn't really think of it in a mystical term, but I said, hey, that's what the Bible says. That's what it says right there in the verse. You know, but as we went to the Bible study and, you know, we, he's going to step verse by verse, I'm seeing this theme. It's about sin. It's about um, unconfessed sin, you know, an issue that a Christian is going through by themselves that doesn't seem to be getting resolved. So let's read the context again, right? Just like Steve said. So let's start from verse um, 13. Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with the oil in the name of the Lord. Verse 15. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick. Save the sick. That phrase should stop you. Well, how, how do you save the sick? Right? No, he's not talking about physical sickness. He's talking about spiritual sickness, about sin. Um, let the um, and the Lord shall raise him up. That's talking. That sounds like more salvation, salvific work. Right? Shall raise him up, and if he have committed sins, there we go. And if he has committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. So that's the real context of that. Right. Right. We're going to talk about twisted scripture today, and. It can be easy to say, well, how can anyone possibly think this is true? But we all make these mistakes. The idea is to maybe leave you with some tools to how to not misinterpret things like this. You know, when you run across a scripture like this, the reason why I've studied it is because it's confusing. It wasn't like, oh, this is obvious. It's like, well, this can't mean that. And sometimes you study and it doesn't mean that. But most often, we are wrong. So for me, I mean, where, where do I even start? The telephone, I mean, the, your answering machine. The so Genesis many. to Revelation. Oh, yeah. So Steve caught me on my uh, yes, voicemail that said, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. It sounds like a very praiseworthy, honoring that God made the day. But it doesn't mean that, right, Steve? No, it doesn't at all. All right. So Steve, what what, what does that mean? Because I mean, even even though I didn't interpret it per se... The, uh, the, the you're the, implying then it's implying right the yeah. vibe that this is a great thing was so, there this is the day the lord has made saturday june 15 2019 rejoice and be glad in it but the verse is found in psalm 118 and the psalm is part of the psalm is a messianic portion yes and so the verse says uh the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Which is talking about Jesus. It is. It's talking about the king of Israel, but also it's dual application talking about Christ. Right. So then the next verse says, this is the Lord's doing. What is? That the rejected stone became the chief cornerstone, and it's marvelous in our eyes. Mm. This is the day 
the Lord has made. Right. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. What day? The day that the chief cornerstone, the, the cornerstone that was rejected became the chief cornerstone. It's pointing to Jesus Christ being enthroned. Right. Wait, wait, right? You're, you're saying a verse is about Jesus? <laughs> in the New <laughs> Testament? You think? No. <laughs> so it has nothing to do with today. Right. But if you look, we sing songs about it. This is the day that the Lord has you made. You a pretty good voice, Steve. I sing a... Uh, um, tenor? Tenor, 10 or 20 miles away. There you go. <laughs> That's how we like you. No. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, realize if you misquote the Bible, you can make it say whatever you want to, right? Absolutely. Just rip one verse out of context. Kicking and screaming. That's it. And you can make it say anything you want. Yes. Well, how would you feel, Glenn, if you heard that me and Phil were at church misrepresenting you by saying things that you never said. I would be like a regular Sunday. <laughs> <laughs> You'd be no, upset. Yeah, I, I would be a little upset. I, yeah. It would be a conversation. Like, why are you saying that? Yeah. You know, ask me. I'm here. The Bible is right there. Well, you how, know, does, how got, does God feel when we do that? Yeah, you know, <laughs> we got the original Greek and Hebrew. We know what it words mean. We can look it up. Even if it has 20 connotations, we can see it. We can see contextually. You know? So there's a verse that says in King James, study to show yourself approved, a workman mm. who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Why would you need not be ashamed? What does he mean by that? Ashamed yeah. of what? Because some people... Twisting some, the scripture. Yeah. They're not studying to show themselves approved. Yeah. Yeah. I even heard of a lady who justified um, divorcing her husband so she can get a new man when she read the words in the Bible, put on the new man. <laughs> well, 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 how should a man interpret that? <laughs> exactly. Is that, is that a homosexual uh, reference? Yeah, this is, that could be problematic. That's right? tough. That's tough. And it's that was a true tough. story, correct? True story. Oh, wow. As you Nick kidding. would say. Mm. Now, wow. And realize that Satan himself even quoted from Psalm chapter 91, verse 11 through 12 to Jesus when he was in the wilderness uh, in Matthew chapter four and verse six. And Jesus responded by quoting more scripture to show how Satan was misinterpreting that passage. Uh, also Deuteronomy chapter six and verse 16. And Steve uh, already alluded to the fact, 2 Timothy 2.15 says that we should work at correctly teaching the truth, with them, which implies that there's a wrong way to interpret and teach the truth, isn't and, there? And what's, Steve, what's Steve's nickname again? The Brooklyn Berean. Right, and I think, I don't know if everyone understands that, that we're talking about the Bereans that are in Thessalonica who, you know, who when, when Paul came to tell them the gospel... They didn't reject them outright. They said, oh, we're going to study the scriptures to yes. see if this is so. And that's kind of what that you're, the name of your, what you mean. So for our audience, what's a simple way we can help them to rightly interpret scripture? Because I have people asking me, well, how do you know what it means? I think the simplest way to go about this is the three rules of interpretation. And you've heard these before. Yes. Context, context, context. If you just read a passage in its context half the problems go away there you go you know and that's so that's what we do we read it in its context we take a verse okay what's the what's the immediate context so a verse is found in a paragraph yes right and then a paragraph is found in a chapter and a chapter is found in a book and a book is found in the old testament anew and that's found in the complete bible Yes. So scripture interprets scripture. So by looking at its context, we're safe and at least we can come at least in the ballpark of what the verse means. Yeah. I mean, and then, then you know, if you misinterpret, you know, accidentally or misunderstanding, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about twisting it. Mm. So you, 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 it's hard to twist in context. Right. Right. That's important. And so when we go to the scriptures, we have to realize certain things like the scripture wasn't written in our, Amer our American culture or whatever culture that you're currently in right now. Um, so words had sometimes different meaning at that time than they do now. Well, the King James uses gay clothing, does it not? Yes. Yeah. Well, we don't want to wear gay clothing today because it means something totally different. Well, I, I just found out today that Jesus didn't talk in old English. It was, it's just a new thing I heard. You didn't know that. <laughs> no these and thous. It was, it was Hebrew and Greek. I, I didn't know. Well, that's something I always people when they say God spoke to me. I always say, what kind of accent did he have? <laughs> <laughs> now, one of the verses that um, was uh, vehemently taken out of context was Isaiah fifty three and verse five. And Glenn, I know you looked into that one because you butchered that one back in the day. 
So well, uh, I'm still getting healed from that verse. Getting healed <laughs> on so, that note. So let me, let me what read does that it. verse say? Let me read it. So it says, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. So the part that people take out of context, pull twist completely out of meaning is his, by his stripes, we are healed. So some of the things, the ways that this gets messed up is obvious, right? It kind of implies that Jesus heals is like a magic spell, right? You pray or you go to a, a healer. Rub the Bible three times. Exactly. And, and so there's three things that I've kind of learned in my Christian walk is, one, Christians never get sick. So sickness is usually mean that there's something wrong with you in your spiritual walk, some kind of sin, or you're just not faithful enough, right? right? Or, it, it, or, or the implication is that there are people around who can heal you. Or it's a salvific thing, being saved. So let me jump into the last thing about the salvific. So I had an um, encounter with someone in a bookstore. Nice lady. She was talking about how, you know, her salva- how she was saved and her evangelism. And basically, she, she basically said to me, the reason why she believes in God is that she had cancer and then God healed her cancer. And obviously, I'm thinking to myself, well, what happens if you get sick again? You, right. you are going to get sick again. You are going to die. The foundation of our faith is not whether God saved you from cancer or whatever other disease it is. Right. So the focus on this passage, which I heard very often when I was in the Assemblies of God, they had what they titled 16 Fundamental Truths. Mm. And a fundamental truth, quote unquote, number 12, read, divine healing is an integral part of the gospel Deliverance from sickness is provided for in the atonement and is the privilege of all believers. And they cite Isaiah 53, 4 and 5, Matthew 8, 16 and 17, and the one you went to before, James 5, 14 through 16. But then what do we do? Like Louis in our church had cancer and he just died. Was there a problem with his faith? He was one of the most faithful men I've ever met. Absolutely. Amen. I mean, he went joyfully unto the Lord. So, you know, it really puts the heavy on people that the reason that they're not being healed is somehow a lack of faith because there's no lack in God. But just because someone is a Christian and believes that God can heal him, and he can, that doesn't mean that God will heal them. And what about that verse in, I believe it's Exodus uh, chapter, is it chapter three or chapter four, where he says, who made the deaf the mute and the blind. Is it not I? Then he tells Moses to go to the Pharaoh and proclaim, let my people go. But God says he made all those people, the deaf, the mute, and the blind. How does that square away with Isaiah 53, 5, wrongly interpreted that all people need to be healed if they believe unto Christ? So so, so a very quick thing. Well, you know what? Let me not even get too far ahead of myself. What basically it's saying is when Christ was on his way to die on the cross— he was beaten, he was whipped, he had the crown of thorns, and the implication is that punishment, that payment was for our sickness. We're healed by that, mm-hmm. All right? That completely misunderstands the whole point. Sure. So, in reality, he was wounded, bruised, and chastised for our sin. Yes. And so, it, it, it can't be that physically. Sure. It can't be that. Yeah, because the the whole context of Isaiah 53 is that there is a spiritual and divine healing that Christ came to deliver his people out of sin. So, well, well, well let's let's go to verse 1. So verse 1 of 53, he's saying, "Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed?" So it's it's already beginning by saying, "Hey, Jesus is going to come." Yes. Who is going to believe he is? And he starts describing him in a way that no one would expect. You expect the king of glory to come on clouds with a majestic feel, and he was born in a manger. He's not beautiful where anyone would, would think highly of him. And that's what the ver- and that whole thing is like, he's going to come and you're not going to know him. Right. He's going to be a man of sorrows. That, but by his stripes, one who is not guilty, the verses before that, let me read it. Verse before that is um, 53... For surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did not esteem him. He was stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgression, saying, he didn't do anything. 
Right. But he's going to get punished. Right. By his stripes, we are healed. What's healed? The sin, the transgression was healed. The context, transgression doesn't mean cancer, right? It doesn't mean a cold. It doesn't mean the flu. It doesn't mean AIDS. Mm. Now, God could certainly heal people from those things. Right. We, it's not that we don't believe that God divinely heals. Absolutely. But there's just not these people like the Apostle Paul and Peter walking around where people are going into our shadow so that they can be healed or Paul handing out uh, Kleenex handkerchiefs to people so that they can just be touched and healed. But that's the problem, right? Yes. It's not that they're saying something that's unbiblical. Right. It's not that they're saying something that you can't find anywhere else in the Bible. It's that that's not what this verse is talking about. It's not the context. Right? So let, let's jump to, to, to like Matthew 9, 6, where, where, where Jesus explains that the miracles that he's doing is to show that he is the Christ. So I don't want to get too deep into it, but Isaiah 53 is saying you're not going to recognize him. Right. The Gospels are saying, Jesus is saying in the Gospels, when they ask, are you the Christ? Are you the one who's expected? He says to John the Baptist, have you seen, have you tell him that the blind were, he, were, 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 were made to see, the lame were, were healed, not saying that healing is the result, but the fact that he's able to heal them yes. shows that he is the Christ because there's nothing else that's going to mark, mark him because he's not going to come the way we expect him to come. Yeah, and you know, I I preached on uh, I believe it's in Acts chapter eight, uh, Philip, love the name, and the Ethiopian eunuch. When the Ethiopian eunuch was reading the scroll of Isaiah fifty three, Philip stopped and said, "Do you have a cold? Because Jesus can take that cold right away." That's what he said, right? <laughs> no, what he did was he explained that the whole passage was about Christ, and it was a messianic psalm. Amen. So I'm sorry, not a psalm. It was a, a messianic passage from the book of Isaiah. Mm. That's what the prophet was pointing to because he told him everything about Christ. Mm-hmm. So the focus wasn't on healing. It was upon Jesus Christ himself. Well, not to belabor this, we got a lot of other verses we're going to address, but I just wanted to read Matthew nine twelve to to kind of underscore what the real purpose is. Matthew nine twelve. Sure. Um. But when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, they that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. So he's come for the sick, the sin sick. Yes. Not the cancer sick. He's saying, so that's the, the, that's the by the stripes that we are healed. When you read about healing and you're thinking about physical healing alone, you're yes. missing the point. So I appreciate that, Glenn. Um, yeah, I think that that passage is butchered uh, so often, and perhaps I've used that passage and butchered it in the past as well when I was in Assembly God. So here's another verse that people take out of context, kicking and screaming, and, and I'm guilty like 15,000 times over for using this verse out of context. Revelation chapter 3, verse 15 through 16. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Oh, yes. <laughs> All right. So, Steve, you're kind of our uh, our resident uh, revelation guy here. Reveal to us, brother. Reveal no, it all. No, that's a lie. That's You're, a lie. You are prophesying, brother. <laughs> I'm rebuked. Though I, I love the book it. of Revelation. Yes. Amillennialism. With, with no S. Revelation. No S. So most people interpret this passage through their faucet in their shower or sink, don't they? Well, yeah. So somebody, you're telling someone, listen, Jesus would rather have you hot, meaning on fire for Christ. Right. Or cold. So if your wife is cold to you, Phil, what does that mean? Sleeping on the couch? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, right? In the garage. What did I do? I don't have a garage, man. So we look at exactly on the driveway. (laughs) So where we look at those as passion and emotion. You're either hot on fire for something, yes, or you're cold towards something, meaning you're indifferent to it. All right. So does it make sense for Jesus to tell a church, I'd have more respect for you if you were just against me? Absolutely not. May no. No. I'd rather you be against me because then at least I won't 
vomit you out of my mouth if you would just not be undecided and in the middle. You know I don't right? think he wants you in the mouth, period. You're no. not a part of him if you're, you're against him. No, so we can't interpret this through sink and shower faucets because they didn't even have those at that time, did they? Or an outhouse like I had in Jamaica. An outhouse in Jamaica. <laughs> now, to understand this, we actually have to know two things, geography and historical background. Yes. Right? So the church he was speaking to was the church in Laodicea, and this church was abundant in riches, and the church greatly benefited from the city's wealth. And it got to the point where they believed they didn't need anything from God. But Jesus said to them and about them, you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. In other words, they had nothing apart from Christ. That's kind of like a ouch. He really indicted them. He really gave them a little tongue lashing and a rebuke there because they thought they didn't need anything. And we need grace every day of our lives, right? Jesus continues and says, for you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing you are wretched, poor, blind, pitiable, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may have clothed yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. So for all of... This doesn't really go along with the faucet thing, right? Well, we're getting there. We're getting there. But for all of Laodicea's luxuries, there's one resource that they didn't have and desperately needed. Do we know what that resource was? Water. Water. Well, from Brooklyn, water. 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 Or in the Bronx. They do that in the Bronx, too. Now, as a teacher, I really like word associations because they help people learn. So nearby, there was a church named Colossi, or in the city, the city Colossi, and they had cool, refreshing, cold water. So Colossi had sea, cold water. And there was another church, Hierapolis, which had medicinal hot water. So H, Hierapolis, H, hot water. But what happens when you channel that water in to Laodicea, hot and cold become? Well, uh, the Roman aqueducts. They built these aqueducts to ship the water. To pipe the water in. Yes. And so by the time the water got there, it became lukewarm and collected all this sediment and all this stuff that was... When you drank it, you would want to vomit. Yes. So so people would literally be, they would drink the water and they would spit it out. So this had everything to do with the geography of where they were located. They were too far from water and had to have it piped in from these two places. And by the time it got from Hierapolis, which had the hot springs, the medicinal water and Colossi, which had the cold springs and the cold water, it came down to Laodicea. And it was lukewarm by the time it got to them. And bleh, I don't know if that sounded like a spitting, but <laughs> you can save the sound effects. You can save the sound effects. I don't want to get my, my mic all wet like Glenn does. No, I'm kidding. Love it. <laughs> but um, if you're anticipating a cool drink and it's warm or lukewarm or hot water and it cools with all those mineral deposits in it, what are you going to do with the water? Spit it out. You're going to spit it out, right? So what... We don't know here until we look in the background is Hierapolis was a good and healthy church. And that church had hot springs. And Colossi was also a good and healthy church and that had cold springs. So Jesus wasn't saying, I would rather you be hot for me and passionate or cold for me and ice, you know, away from me. Um, but I would rather you be like the hot, healthy church in Hierapolis where the hot springs are or cold like the healthy church in Colossae, but because you're far from the source, you cannot offer the cool, refreshing water of the gospel to anyone, nor the medicinal healing that comes from the gospel to anyone because you are so far from me and my word. Wow. Wow. Learning that, that like completely riveted me. That makes a lot of sense. But in my mind, I'm thinking, well, what do you do if you don't know this history, this geography? Right. Well, I I like what Steve um, normally says of the gaps 
in uh, interpretation of scripture because we didn't live during that first century. And so, Steve, what are some of the gaps that you normally mention? Well, and, and these are well-known in hermeneutics. We have the historical gap. We have a, a geographical gap. We have a linguistic gap. Cultural. Yeah, right. cultural gap. So I can't... Some people will say, I only read the Bible. That's a little arrogant because you can't really learn the Bible in its totality with just the Bible without tools because these gaps are issues that we went up against. But Steve, I have the Holy Spirit who teaches me all things. I know, but the Holy Spirit doesn't reveal things to us that our brain doesn't take in. So the Holy Spirit's not going to give me the Greek and the Hebrew? No. You actually have to study for that? You have to study that. For for example, for example, you know the whole pull up your girdle? What's a girdle? You know what? You know they, they, they describe the in the Old Testament. It talks about pulling up your girdle and, and going into battle. Well, what is that? Well, well you dudes, have to know how they dress. Dudes wore girdles. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. And how does that look? Why is it important? Some of the descriptions you cannot just say, "Hey, it's a shirt." Yeah. Well, so exactly. Or pants. In this case right here, just reading the Bible, you're not going to know that cold is good. You're going to think cold is bad because we are going to read it. And our understanding of what cold means. And we're back in the shower then yeah. and in the bathtub. So by reading the verse, you have to get tools. Yes. So a background commentary, right? Something that'll explain the region and what was going on and, and the towns around it. So yes. you have a better understanding because Jesus is speaking to them with uh, visuals that they will understand. They understood when they tasted that water. They spit it out. It was that disgusting. Because they lived during that time period. Exactly. And now, 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 if you're like me and you're kind of, I don't like commentaries. I mean, you still need a book that tells you what the culture was like, what how they dressed, what you know, what the histor- historical record. Even if you don't want to get a commentary, because you're kind of you know nervous about people's interpretations, you still need to know what a girdle is. What what did they eat? What were they dressed like? What ten was the life? virgins? What is ten virgins? Yeah, exactly. Like, I mean, you need resources. So what do you do when you hear a word and you don't know what the word means in English? What do you use? You pray in tongues and you ask God to give you a <laughs> a, a direct revelation. No, and don't. and once you have a headache from not figuring it out, you go to the pastor and he anoints yeah. your head with oil, <laughs> and then you get that healing. A Bible dictionary. Right. So when you don't know, yeah, when you don't know a word in English, you just go to the dictionary, right? So in the scriptures, there um, are tools that we can use to help us called Bible dictionaries. Right. Maybe you don't have one. Maybe you never even heard of one. Maybe you only thought there was like Oxford and Merriam-Webster dictionaries, but there are Bible dictionaries. And we'll have some listed on our page uh, that you can go to and ones that we recommend that are good because there are some bad Bible dictionaries out there as well. But I uh, will recommend some good ones to you. But this would be crucially important because we have to get the background um, of what's going on in this passage and in passages that we wouldn't naturally know the background because time is a huge gap. And we're so far removed from first century because we're in 2019. That's pretty far away from, uh, you know, the uh, first century, isn't it? It's, I think it's 1900 years. <laughs> <laughs> So getting back to uh, this passage, people would so wrongly realize uh, or misinterpret this passage and really put the heavy on people and think, you know, you're just cold um, because you haven't made a decision for Christ, not realizing that, that they're not using the verse in context. Isaiah twenty nine thirteen says, this people draw near to me with their mouths and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. And their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Many churches today have sought after wealth and prosperity, and they've moved away from the source, which is Jesus Christ. Not the source of wealth and prosperity per se, but they've chased after these other things, just like the Laodicean church has done. And they've not gotten refreshed by Christ himself. And that's the point of that verse. Those yes. Verses. And so the main point is not the hot or cold, but the lukewarmness. Yes. Or, 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 the, or the denying that you need Christ, that you're a Christian without Christ. Because you think you have everything. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And the people who use this verse in that way are the ones who are abusing it the most. Big time. Because Jesus says at the end, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. There's your answer of what you need to do with that verse. Amen. So, Steve, uh, besides looking at the passage here about being hot, cold, and lukewarm, 
What is another verse that you have taken out of context or heard that has been taken out of context? Well, I've heard it and I've also used it and I'm embarrassed. <laughs> you should be. But it's a saying you've heard many times. I've came out of a charismatic background, uh, love charismatics. I have a lot of good friends. Brooklyn I just, Tabernacle. Yeah, just disagree with a lot of their theology. Um, but what I learned was to, if you needed to hear from God, you had to get quiet and listen for the three words, still, small, small voice. Yes. You've heard that, right? I probably have said yeah. it. Well, <laughs> I've definitely heard that. Yeah. So I just went on Twitter today and looked around and Facebook and uh, just to see who else is using this. And I found what Beth Moore said. Uh-oh. And I get all my info from her. <laughs> <laughs> Don't listen to Beth Moore. She's not good. You're disbarred. <laughs> so listen to what she said. There's a time to give up and a time to keep trying. Sometimes the time to keep trying feels a whole lot like the time to give up. The only difference is the still, small voice of the Holy Spirit within you saying, try again. So when Beth Moore is struggling, she looks for a word from within, a still small voice. I went on Twitter and a few other quotes. Learn to follow the still small voice and shut down the noise around you. Just because something is good doesn't mean it's God's plan for your life. Pray and listen to his still small voice. Stephen Furtick says, pay attention to the subtle clues and the still small voice. Maybe you'll hear it this very day. So before before you even get started, I mean, you're just bringing up memories in my mind. So um, or I'm nightmares. Not, <laughs> well, I don't want to name names because I don't want to embarrass anyone. But you know, I'm like a pastor Moore and Stephen Furtick. <laughs> well, well, these these are less known people. Um, and one of the pastors was describing to me how I should make decisions, and he was basically like, "You're going to have two apples, and one of them is going to feel a little better for you." And it was kind of the same still small voice. Are these thing. computer apples or like <laughs> off the tree apples? Off the tree apples. Because if you have two apples, I'll take one. Yeah, and, and basically what he's saying is, whatever decision you have to make, you're going to have a couple options, and and God's going to make you feel better about one of them. And this is the same still small voice thing, and I just it just is popping in my head as you're talking. And there's like, so, so you, what's the biblical basis? So you'll have a good feeling about yeah, it. Yeah, which is which is a still small voice kind inside of, of like coming Jesus out. in Gethsemane. He had a good feeling about going to the cross. We read a different Bible. He was very <laughs> torn about that. Yeah. So that's why that doesn't work. But so this idea of listening for a still small voice, I mean, where does that come from? These three words, still small voice. I think it's first Kings. It is. And we're going to look at that. But. Doesn't the Bible teach us about the sufficiency of Scripture? Beth Moore is looking with inside for a still small voice. But look what Paul tells Timothy. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be almost complete, equipped for every good work. Heresy, heresy <laughs> alert. Twisted Scripture exactly. alert. Exactly. <laughs> It says, verse 17, that the man of God may be complete. So the question is, how complete is complete? Can you get any more complete than complete? People are being taught by pastors that they need direction in life, right? When they're facing uncertainties to get alone with God, get quiet and listen for the still small voice. When the apostles asked Jesus, teach us to pray, did Jesus tell them to listen to a still small voice? He did not. He did not. <laughs> so 1 Kings chapter 19 and verse 12, and we're going to look at that. What we have here is the story of Elijah. And well, Elijah in chapter 18. Th that's when he was um, uh, um, getting in that battle with the, 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 the 40 priests. Or was yeah, it? of Baal. Of Baal. Right. And, and basically they're cutting themselves and they're doing everything to attract God, their gods, but they can't. Then Elijah just says a simple prayer the lightning comes down and lights the fire and the, the, the priests are killed. And he runs away, right? He's running from Jezebel. Like. Well, Jezebel, first first he says it's going to rain and rain comes and he outruns the chariot. But then Jezebel says she's going to kill him. Right. And after he just saw this great display of God. And then the woman says, I'm going to kill you. He gets depressed and runs away. He was right. the first flesh. So, so, so he's, he's in hiding, yeah. basically. So now he's a, he ends up like uh, a few hundred miles away. And he finally ends up, to make the story short, in... Mount Horeb, which is Mount Sinai, where Moses was. And starting in verse 9, the Lord comes to Elisha, and listen to this. 1 Kings 19, verse 9. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. 
And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altar and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I alone am left and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. So he's in a cave and who comes and speaks audibly to him? Uh, the Lord. I think God. it's the Lord. They're having a conversation. What are you doing here, Elijah? And he answered him. Now, I've been zealous for you, Lord. And so God says, okay, now I want you to go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And now listen, verse 11. And behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And then after the earthquake, fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a still, small voice, or the ESV says a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And then behold, there was a voice that came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he began to repeat what he said. I'm very zealous for the Lord. I'm the only one left, blah, 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 blah. So this is where people get this term, still small voice. Wait, wait. So the first other times when he was talking in a regular voice, (laughs) we don't listen to that. Well, that's the thing. And that's why this is so crazy and absurd. People will say Elijah had to learn to listen for the still small voice of God, but he's having a conversation with God. And God said, what are you doing here? Well, I'm zealous for you and nobody else is serving you and they want to kill me. God said, okay, get up and go outside and stand on the mountain. So he doesn't do that right away. And he sees all this activity going on. And whenever God shows up in the Old Testament, like when Moses was on the mountain, we saw fire in the mountain quaked and uh, brimstone and thunder and so when a theophany shows up god shows up with great power right right so let's look at verse 12 it says still small voice it's the one place in all of scripture the term is used you cannot find that term still small voice anywhere else i think one version describes it as a soft breeze well listen and after the fire the sound of a low whisper Other translations say a still small voice, King James, a low whisper, ESV, gentle blowing, New American Standard, and gentle breeze, the CEV version. It's a Hebrew idiom that consists of three words, kol, damama, daka. What'd you say about my mama? (laughs) (laughs) It's like your mama. So (laughs) it's three words, which is a Hebrew idiom. The first word kol means sound. Right. Damama means calm, silent, stillness, or whisper. And daka means thin, small, or fine. The best translation comes from Simon and Garfunkel. So basically, it's saying it's a sound of thin silence. So what did Elijah hear? Nothing. Complete and utter silence. So he's having a conversation with God. Right. God is speaking to him. And so now God is beginning to show him something. And the lesson here is not, Elijah, I want to teach you how to pray. So I want you to get quiet so you can hear my still, small voice. Well, that was good. You like that, right? Yeah, that's very small. I had the anointment. <laughs> so, it's all over you, brother. Right. So listen to what the new Bible commentary says about this. I'm going to read a few commentaries. It's good to read commentaries. Certain commentaries. Certain commentaries. These are good commentaries. God's response was to pass by while Elijah stood at the entrance of his cave. Wind, earthquake, and fire manifested themselves in succession. But God is said to have not been in any of these. Then a different phenomenon followed. The translation, a gentle whisper and a still small voice, do not do full justice to the enigmatic Hebrew expression, which may be better rendered as a brief sound of silence. Although the text does not explicitly say so, it implies that God was at least passing by with silence, which followed the storm. 
This event provided a vivid demonstration that God is not always at work in ways which are visible and dramatic. He may choose to be present silently, for God can work in ways which even his servants cannot detect. Listen to what Ralph Davis says in his commentary. Might this suggest that Yahweh will not be giving many dramatic, overt proofs of his reality as at Carmel? The quietness of Yahweh's work does not mean he's not at work, but rather that the kingdom of God has gone into a mustard seed mode. There is a spillover from the text to our day. Christians may crave signs, but will seldom find Christ in the wind and the earthquake and the fire. It is Baal worship that works up orgasms. Biblical faith is content with the word of God. You heard that? Biblical faith is content with the word of God. And so God is teaching him, listen, don't look for me in always in the dramatic things. Grandiose. Exactly. Right. God yeah. sometimes does his greatest work in those quiet places where you don't even see him working. Even and he said, I am the only one. And God said, no, you're not. You don't see what's going on. I have 7,000 people I reserved who have not bowed their knee to bed. And so I think it, that's the key to it, that, yeah. that verse. It's, it's like many people think God is always in the huge, grandiose things of our lives, and he's not in the day-to-day -day mundane things, if you will, of our everyday living. And, and, and then I, the I, other point is that people think if they need to hear from God, what they need to do is do what Elijah did, and listen for the still small voice. But yes. was that what he was doing? No, no. I, no. I think, I think, I think it's also saying you're depressed, you're sad. You thought I was, I was with you then, and now I'm not with you. But I'm really with you now. Right. So if I'm feeling down, then God's not with me. And if I'm winning a huge battle, like I'm, I'm out there and I'm contending for the faith, going against the prophets of Baal, if you will, against Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, and I'm thundering, then God's with me at that time, you know, but when things are not going so well in my life, then God's not with me. And so, uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, I think we live this out. And, and you know, you know what, Steve, as you're explaining this, it's such a complex beautiful thing about god and our relationship with him and they've reduced it to something so trivial so in the new testament are we taught to ever pray to listen to a still small voice no if we need direction from god where do we go we go to the word of god and then we pray that god would use the word to, to speak to us right yeah it also Not reminds outside me. of scripture true not within as beth moore said but we look away from ourselves to the objective word of God, and we pray and we read and we seek guidance and wisdom from the scriptures. Yes. To your point as well, uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 3, when Samuel wants to hear Samuel. from God. Samuel. Right. And so people use that passage as if someone can learn to hear from God. God is not speaking in riddles. God speaks, we look into his word, and we hear it. I believe it was Justin Peters who said, and maybe we said this previously on the podcast, if you want to hear from God, read your Bible. And if you want to hear God audibly, read your Bible out, out loud. loud. <laughs> right, right. And why do people, so many people want to divorce God's word from hearing from God? I mean, that's majorly problematic, isn't it? That is going beyond what is written. And that is being in sin. You can't hear from God apart from his word. And in, in my studies of cults, and I mentioned Mormonism before, do you know how Mormons uh, come to believe that they um, are pleasing to God and that God is with them? What do they have in their bosom, right? They have the burning in the bosom. So what's different from that and the still small voice wrongly understood there really is no difference so if we're doing this still small voice thing like almost like contemplative prayer uh that famous book out there uh, i think it's called jesus calling by sarah young Ugh. another one you must stay heresy, away from heresy but it's on the top 10 list on like uh many quote-unquote christian books it's horrible don't do it don't. use it for uh Please. firewood or i, I mean fire starter would, would you argue that i mean the bible is saying that our that we are sinful. Yes. That we, we we're sin stained. That it's our flesh is bad. Speaking about me so, again. So 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 once again, 
I don't want to know still small voice. I don't want to go inside of myself to find out what I, you know, how, how I feel about any situation. How about this? I want objective <laughs> truth from the Bible that once interpreted correctly is how I should live my life. God Which, gave us 66 letters and we're saying, you know what? I'm going to put the letters in the bookshelf and I'm going to go somewhere else to hear. But yet he sent you all these letters. So imagine, Steve, you were, were you no, you weren't in the military. You were in the um, Merchant Marines, right? Yes. So imagine if you had a sweetheart and she wrote you all these letters, right? And you have all these envelopes like stacked up and you go into the corner of the ship somewhere and you're like, you know what? I'm just going to try to listen for her voice. Well, you want to know her voice? Open the letters and read them. <laughs> exactly. Come on, think that. Yes, yes, it, yes. It's similar to, to telling a child, you know what? I'm not going to write rules for how you do your chores. Just think about what your father would want you to do and how you feel about no this is what i want you to do xyz here's the it, checklist it comes, do them all it comes down to the sufficiency of scripture and people don't believe that the scriptures are sufficient steve's getting theological on us again again but it comes Man. back to 2 timothy 3:16 how complete is complete if the scriptures are enough to make us complete that we can do every good work why are we looking outside of Scripture for a word from God when God has gone into great details to give us 66 completed books in canon? I can't even live up to the 66 books. I don't need someone coming to me and says, I have a word from God for you. I'm trying to live out what's already written. Now, are you going to give me another word? So, 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 here's a good, here's a good uh, question for that. When somebody says, I have a word God, from God for you, say, uh, uh, what Bible verse are you quoting? <laughs> So anyway, there is no verse in the Bible anywhere that teaches a Christian to listen for a still, small voice. It is not in the Bible at all, yet so many people are basing their spiritual growth on listening for some still, small voice that God never said that he would provide. Well, it can take a lifetime of learning to grasp God's word, and even then you will never have fully exhausted it. Don't let up studying God's word and rightly handling the word of truth. We need to be like the Bereans who studied to see if even what Paul was saying was true. So when your pastor preaches, you should be able to study and come up with the exact same interpretation that he came up with because the word of God never changes. Or at least in the ballpark. At least in the ballpark. So if you need some resources or you want to further discuss this, please feel free to email us at stopandthinkcrew at gmail.com. That's stopandthinkcrew at gmail.com. And we just want to thank you all for taking the time to listen to this podcast. All our friends and foes, saints and sinners, may we rightly divide and handle the word of truth. If you would like to contact us, please email us at stopandthinkcrew at gmail.com. You could also visit our website at www.stopandthinkpodcast.com. This podcast is listener-supported by generous people like you. You can give a tax-deductible donation at our affiliate ministry at www.soulfishingministries.org and click on our donate link to give securely through PayPal. Thank you for listening to Stop and Think About It. 